Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Kathleen McIntyre about her new book, Protestantism and State Formation in Post-Revolutionary Oaxaca, hot off the press this year from the University of New Mexico Press. Dr. McIntyre is Assistant Professor of Gender and Women's Studies at the University of Rhode Island, where she also serves as the Director of the Honors Program. She's a former American Association of University Women Fellow. She recently participated as well in the National Endowment for the Humanities Women's Suffrage in the Americas Summer Institute. A very socially engaged and very busy scholar, indeed. Dr. McIntyre has taken some time out of her schedule while attending the annual Western History Association meeting in Las Vegas this weekend. So I'm grateful for that. Finally, Dr. McIntyre and I go way back to our graduate days at the University of New Mexico. So I'm delighted to have my very good friend with me today, Dr. McIntyre. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Julian. Katie, I wonder uh, if you could just start us off by telling us uh, a little bit about yourself. Sure. Okay. Well, I grew up in New York State in High Park, New York, FDR's hometown, and that's an area, the Mid-Hudson Valley, uh, since the 1970s, has had a lot of immigration from Oaxaca. So growing up from elementary school on, I had friends that were from Oaxaca, and I was always really interested in, in visiting Oaxaca and learning more about um, migration issues. In college, I went to Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Uh, Vassar had a lot of connections with the immigrant community of Poughkeepsie, again, um, mostly from Oaxaca. So I was involved in some social justice work around issues of uh, immigrants feeling kind of safe and listened to in the Poughkeepsie community. And I also did advocacy work for um, Latino farm workers. Again, many of them were from Oaxaca. They worked in the dairy industry in the Hudson Valley, or they they did um, onions uh, and other types of agriculture. And doing that really brought me into, kind of brought me intimately into what it was like um, to leave this, to leave Oaxaca, these um, very close-knit, tightly woven communities where Spanish often isn't the first language and many communities that have these really important and very powerful and proud uh, religious celebrations and traditions, um, mainly Catholic, and so when I would talk to a lot of um, agricultural workers who, um, you know, labored in the Hudson Valley, they would often talk about going back for the Saints Day Fiesta for the, uh, for some sort of big um, uh, mass and, and religious uh, celebration surrounding the, the particular saint who their town was named for. So that was always on my radar, this interest in uh, learning more about um, kind of Catholic traditions in Oaxaca. And when I went to Oaxaca my junior year of college, I also learned that 
in many of these communities, while they're still heavily Catholic, there was also a growing um, Protestant population. And sometimes there was differences or conflicts over how these um, these patron saint day fiestas should be celebrated. So that was all kind of going on. And then personally, my family is from Ireland. Um, my mom's right from uh, County Kerry in Ireland. My dad's family is from uh, the North. And I think also from a young age, I was very aware of Protestant Catholic issues in Northern Ireland um, throughout the 1980s. Um, my family was, was very aware of what was going on during the Troubles. And I remember from a young age, just thinking about in Northern Ireland, there was a Protestant majority and a minority Catholic population and all of the conflicts that came about, about where you could where you could find a job, where you couldn't work if you were Catholic and things like that. So I think religious uh, majority minority issues were always on my mind. And my own family, um, my immediate family is, is quite Catholic. My oldest brother is a Franciscan. He's very involved uh, in social justice issues um, with uh, Latino immigrant communities in the U.S. He did a lot of his, his, um, uh, his studies and training in Latin America. So he's fluent in Spanish and he's always been assigned to Spanish speaking parishes. He's 14 years older than I am. So I think from a young age, I also was really interested in, in um, kind of Latino Catholic traditions in the U.S. But I also knew from my brother's work that there also was a lot of Latinos um, and recent um, Latin American immigrants who were leaving the Catholic Church and joining um, you know, Pentecostal denominations or, or other, uh, other uh, churches. So I was, always, I was interested in that. And I also think in my broader family, even though my immediate family is, is, is quite Catholic and a lot of the tr- Irish traditions that we follow, especially around the Virgin Mary and a lot of the, the festivals that we celebrate. And sometimes we'll go back to my mom's hometown in, in Kinmare County, Kerry for the, um, uh, the, uh, the Assumption of, of the Virgin Mary and August 15th fair fiesta. Um, we do have, I do have uncles on my dad's side. I have an aunt, I have an uncle who have left the Catholic church and they're they're Pentecostals. And within my own family, even though we're, you know, we're still close to them, it has created conflicts. Will they come to my wedding where alcohol is going to be served? Um, will they, um, will they participate in, will they go to my niece's first Holy Communion, uh, celebration, things like that? Will we go to their, will we visit their churches, um, when they're having special, revival meetings. Those were all kind of questions that my family had to grapple with. And although, again, we're still close as a family, it it did cause some some conflicts and sometimes some hard feelings. And so all of that shaped me that when I started studying um, the history of Protestantism in Latin America and speaking one-on-one with families in Oaxaca, I felt like some of what they were saying are things that, oh, yeah, I that kind of sounds like what happened in my family. What happens if someone is a godmother to your child and then later becomes a Pentecostal and wants nothing to do with the Catholic traditions of being a godmother or godfather? So I would talk to families in Oaxaca where they would say, this was really hard. This person was you know, my child's godmother and they had these types of you know, important responsibilities and it was great. We, you know, we were comadres, all of this stuff. And then they left the church. And so that can, we still have a, a good relationship, but anything dealing with religion or some of the, the questions surrounding how I, I'm you know, raising my, my kid have become problematic and, and fraught, right? Will they come to you know, different parties that we're doing to celebrate La Virgen de Guadalupe or, or Dia de los Muertos? Right. 
what's what's kind of you know really interesting about about your book? You you, you certainly come through quite a lot in uh, in the book itself, and and as you've just pointed out, you're um, uh, you've you've been kind of in this world uh, for most of most of your life. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, for, for the book itself, uh, how did you come to write it? You, you've had this interest in the, in the subject, but how did you come to write this book? What was this genesis? Sure. Um, well, so after college, I spent a few years uh, as a social worker. I, I worked in a domestic violence shelter in Poughkeepsie, New York, and you know, people from all different um, you know, backgrounds uh, used our services. And I, I remember meeting a lot of um, uh clients who might be from Mexico who had recently converted to, they become Pentecostal or they become um, maybe a Jehovah's Witness. And they talked about how um, that there was more, there was kind of more feelings of intimacy or a closer connection or more support with the kind of the immigrant experience by joining uh, those congregations, uh, those denominations. So I remember thinking about that. Um, I went to grad school and did a, after working at the shelter for two years, I did a master's in Latin American studies at the University of New Mexico. And most of my work there was on human rights issues, particularly around the themes of immigration. I stayed on. Um, I had some wonderful classes with uh, the historian uh, Linda Hall. And so I stayed on for the PhD to work with Linda on um, 20th century Mexican history. And the reason I got into Protestantism and, and issues of state formation was that as I was taking coursework and spending um, more and more time in Mexico, I realized there was a great deal of um, you know, really good scholarship on Catholic history in 20th century Mexico, a lot of um, good works on uh, the, the Cristiada movement, uh, the, the, the Cristeros. And I felt like works were starting to come out by sociologists and anthropologists on Protestantism, but there wasn't a lot by historians. Um, of course, Deborah Baldwin's book uh, that came out, I think it was the late nineties or I could be wrong on that date uh, on Protestants and the, and the Mexican revolution was an early book that really shaped me. Um, but I remember thinking there's so many good scholars out there looking at Catholics and wondering how issues of migration might be impacted by Catholicism, what happens when most of the men in the town at any given time um, have left to work in Tijuana or in Chicago, Los Angeles, Poughkeepsie, New York, uh, what happens to social organization and social structures and fiestas. I remember thinking that was really interesting and important, but I felt like nobody was asking, well, what happens if you have a community where most of the people um, aren't Catholic anymore, or uh, there's a minority, um, you know, Pentecostal population where that's not really on their radar. So I remember thinking, there's not a lot of people asking those questions, particularly in uh, Native communities. And when they do ask those questions, it tended to be a book about uh, criticism of, of U.S. missionaries um, who were in Mexico in the 1930s through the 1970s saying, well, the reason Oaxacans or, uh, or Chiapans have turned to Protestantism was because, you know, these Yankee imperialists came and stuffed the religion down their throats. And you know, it was, they were well-heeled and well-funded and maybe, uh, who knows, maybe the Rockefellers were funding them and, and that's why people converted, but they didn't really want to. And I remember thinking that could very well be true. I'm not going to apologize. I'm not apologizing for, um, 
U.S. Uh, missionaries that came in and, and probably changed a lot of things and, and did some harm. Uh, I'm certainly not saying, you know, rah, 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 get, get, that's great that those missionaries were there. But at the same time, I don't think you can say that that it's just this purely Yankee imperialist thing, that there, there'd be no other interest in leaving the Catholic Church if it weren't for those uh, Yankee missionaries coming in in the, in the late 19th century or in the 30s. So I remember thinking there's something that's, there's something that's being offered here, something that is very um, attractive uh, to people to, to leave Catholicism and join these other religions. What is it? And how did, what happens if you're in a kind of an isolated community um, you know, far away from any major towns or cities. What happens if you're one of the handful of families that now identifies as Baptist and other people in the community are, are kind of angry with you because you've changed some important traditions or you're no longer participating in some traditions? So I was, that's what I was kind of thinking about. And I was wondering, well, how did the Mexican government react to this? Were they okay with um, Protestants? And how did that change over time? How did, how can we learn more about Native communities' relationship with the federal and state governments through the lens of religion, particularly the Protestant faith. Um, I was also influenced by books um, such as Todd Harch's book on the Summer Institute of Linguistics. That was one of those Protestant U.S. missionary groups that was in Mexico from the 1930s to the 70s. They were all over Latin America and many parts of the world, and they often had uh, very controversial uh, receptions in those countries. Uh, in some places, they were they were kicked out, asked to leave. In Mexico, in the late seventies, uh, their visas were not renewed, so they weren't actually kicked out, but they de facto were because their their work visas um, were not renewed. So, I think that was kind of the main the genesis of it is well, what about um, what about the Protestants? And again, I'm not. I was writing at it writing about it from a historical perspective. Um, books that I read, other books that I read about the history of kind of Protestant groups were kind of institutional histories. Like, oh, um, my parents used to go to this Baptist church, so I want to write a little history about the church and, and how great it was. And that's fine, but I thought that's not really engaging with um, kind of other histori- the historical context or, or the historiography. So that was, those were some of the, the thoughts that shaped this book. Right. And uh, I, I wonder, you know, you, you kind of, you kind of talked about it from the, from the Protestant angle. Um, I, I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit about um, what the historical impacts of Protestantism have been on indigenous communities. Uh, what are, what are the um, kind of the issues that the long-term impacts, the, the kind of inclusion or exclusion uh, factors that that kind of go along with uh, conversion uh, in indigenous communities? Sure. And I guess I should first start off by saying that many communities in Oaxaca are governed by usos y costumbres, customary law. Um, and again, it comes from Hispanic times. Some historians would argue it was, it was very much pre-Hispanic times, where um, within customary law, there's there's kind of a civil religious hierarchy where different uh, people in the community are, are tapped for different uh, positions, uh, whether that means kind of being mayor of the town or being in charge of the big uh, uh, patron Saint Day um, fiesta celebrations or even lower types of uh, roles or, or um, positions such as, you know, being in charge of sweeping, uh, sweeping the streets or the sidewalks or 
uh, making sure the the school roof, um, the gutters are cleaned out each year. So all kinds of different roles come into this to to customary law. And with customary law, um, it's has changed a lot now, but. Generally, it was men in the community. Um, the elders would often vote on on certain issues. They would vote by you know, raising a hand or, or maybe secret ballot about who would be the next leader or who would be in charge of, of certain duties, certain obligations. And when Protestantism came in, uh, you had some converts saying, well, we don't really have to follow to the T all aspects of customary law because you know there's a federal constitution uh, that says we have certain rights and that we don't necessarily have to follow um, some of the traditions in this town. If, if I don't want to give some money towards the Virgin of Guadalupe festival for the, the dance or the drink or the drinks or the flowers in the church, I don't have to. So uh, in a sense, becoming a convert could potentially challenge uh, local rule, local authority, because sometimes converts also became uh, empowered, or maybe you could say emboldened by um, by Protestant uh, ministers or congregants in, in towns or, or larger cities, where they would say, "Well, you can you can write a protest letter or petition you know, the local government, uh, the the governor's office, if if you're being." forced to do engage in some sort of activity that seems religious in nature. If, if you don't want, if you don't want to do that, um, you shouldn't have to. And if you're being fined or you were thrown in you know, jail for the day because you didn't do something that was part of customary law, then you can, you can petition the governor, write a letter. And some of the, some of the um, earliest kind of Protestant rights organizations were founded in Mexico city and other big cities. And a lot of them, uh, the founders were lawyers and they would look for cases. They would look for cases in places like Oaxaca or say Chiapas. And they would say, um, you know, as, as a Protestant where your rights violated because of customary law. And they would, they would, you know, this could be in the 1940s or fifties. They would, they would write up a letter and have people in that community sign it. And then they would give it to the governor's office saying that there's this religious, um, religious conflict or this, you know, that the, uh, uh, freedom of religion, um, guarantees in the Mexican constitution are being violated there. So I would say in terms of inclusion, exclusion, certainly customary law could be a problem because in many of these communities, and there's good reason why customary law um, was so important. Many of these communities had been exploited for centuries, whether it was, you know, the Spanish or, you know, 19th century plantation owners exploiting them for you know, uh, you know, chocolate or, or um, other types of uh, cochineal, other types of products that their communities uh, their natural resources included. So there was a very good reason why you should stick together in the community and, and be suspicious of outsiders who are coming in with with new jobs or new promises or new religions. And certainly, um, you know, the 20th century, with a lot of the the, the um, some of the uh, the impacts of the of the Mexican Constitution of 1917, didn't necessarily make its way up to some of these really isolated communities. Um, unless the reach of the state got there. And so in some ways, the reach of the state got to these communities because Protestant organizers or missionaries or health officials or teachers would come into those communities and say, hey, you know, the Mexican constitution says there's freedom of, of religion. So uh, you can't tear down that, those people's church if they want to have this Baptist church and they filled out the proper paperwork with the state and federal authorities. You can't, um, you can't, um, forbid them from holding services. And so Protestants 
came into a lot of these communities after the Mexican Revolution, after the Constitution of 1917, because with the um, the growth um, of the reach of the state through health clinics, through uh, the the Ministry of Public Education, and other t- uh, hygiene campaigns, right, uh, vaccine campaigns. Uh, who was going to go into these communities? And a lot of times it was teachers, it was healthcare workers, and uh, potentially it was Protestant missionaries. And the Mexican government in the 20s and 30s, for the most part, um, were, were very much uh, uh, pleased or to have um, uh, Protestants set up, uh, kind of set up shop in some of these communities, as long as these Protestants, um, these converts, as long as they were very uh, supportive of the the goals of the of the post revolutionary state. I'm I'm glad you you mentioned uh, this this issue of kind of you know local authority with indigenous communities. You know, you you talk about the importance of of autonomy, um, and and there's there's always kind of you know in um, uh, in Mexican history, there's always going to this pull, uh, you know, between the the local and uh, you know the federal, you know, Mexico City, and its its impact on uh, you know education, particularly in the the post revolutionary period, was talking about you know secularism or or education or, or what you name it, and and you have to reference that you know that that um, you know incredibly important. Um, uh, um, you know, edited volume, Joseph and Nugent's Everyday Forms of State Formation, and, and all those wonderful scholars that contributed to these uh, these essays to talk about the different ways that um, kind of the the push and pull between the local and, and Mexico City kind of in, a, in a kind of uh, contributed to this process of state formation. Uh, and, and I wonder, you know, for the uninitiated, right, for for listeners who maybe don't know about that that larger discussion, I wonder if you could uh, kind of tell us how how something like Protestantism fits in with that larger discussion of, of, you know, processes of state formation in Mexico. Sure. Um, Well, I think in some ways Protestantism went very closely with post-revolutionary goals of integrating indigenous peoples into the, the fabric of the nation, into, into citizens. So some of the, some of the goals of kind of, state formation were, and some of the questions were, well, how do you integrate you know, native populations who for a long time have felt um, isolated or, or um, you know, have felt uh, that they were separate or, or different um, from mestizo Mexicans? How do you kind of integrate them into the fabric of the nation? And one way, of course, was through education, right? Mandatory um, public education or doing outreach uh, to, to build schools in rural areas and in, in native communities and some of the, the radio, uh, um, the radio schools, the um, escuelas uh, del radio. Uh, how do you, right, how do you get out, how do you get, you know, state education out to those areas? And so a lot of the, a lot of Protestants um, for the 1920s on, and, and I'm, and here I'm speaking about Mexican Protestants, uh, they became very active and had high positions in the Ministry of Public Education, right? Moises Sainz was a was a um, Protestant Methodist, maybe, and many um, many teachers uh, who participated, who worked for the Ministry of Public Education, identified as Protestant. And of course, Julian, as as you know from all of your good scholarship, uh, so many Catholics were were very uh, were nervous and out and to a degree outraged by many of the. Um, the acts of the of public education, some of the schools, oh, yeah, absolutely. some of the right, some of the rules, and so a lot of Catholics said, you know, well, 
I don't want my my daughter or son teaching for, uh, you know, being a public school teacher. They're basically bringing, you know, secularism to Mexico, if at best, you know, atheism at worst. And um, we're not participating or we're not sending our kids. So Protestants would say, oh, yeah, you know, um, many of the some of the really famous Protestant schools in Mexico were um, teaching certificate schools, normales, uh, the one in, there's, there's ones in Puebla and Mexico City, other areas where they would graduate hundreds each year, hundreds of school teachers who were duly certified. They could certainly teach in Protestant schools, um, but they were also had certification to teach uh, for the Ministry of Public Education, for SEP, Secretaria de Educación Pública. So um, you had a lot of school teachers being sent to uh, to teach in rural communities and native communities uh, who identified as Protestant. And of course they received a lot of, they could potentially receive backlash in, in, in areas that they were sent to. Um, Cause certainly they were representatives of the state, right? They were seen as these uh, school teachers certainly were, were a way, uh, uh, um, a way to view uh, the reach of the state. So that was one way, certainly nurses um, and other health officials, um, you know, who were carrying out uh, public, you know, uh, vaccine programs, other things in these communities were other ways of, of kind of um, uh, bringing the state into these communities. And I think in a sense, um, Protestantism tested the strength of the, of the constitution, how carefully, you know, would, would federal law uh, be followed in places where, you know, you might be in, in Oaxaca, you might be in a community that's, you know, 12 hours at best uh, in, you know, some sort of, uh, uh, bus to get to the capital city. So you might have a, a federal constitution that says, you know, uh, liberty of, of religion is guaranteed. But what does that mean if you're in a community where uh, the chance of a um, you know representative from Oaxaca City getting up there to act as a mediator, they might come, but it might take a couple of months after you've sent a letter uh, requesting some sort of mediation. Um, and in these communities, people might say, look, we've always there's a reason why we've always kind of kept our traditions. There's some, there's, you know, there's been examples in the past where we've been exploited and, you know, if you don't like it, just, just leave. And so you had lots of examples of Protestant converts uh, being expelled from their communities. And so in one of my chapters, I talk about uh, expulsions of, um, uh, of Protestants from places like Yosundua and the Mixteca and in some other uh, communities where they were basically told, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to keep holding your Protestant services, if you're not going to participate in some of our community traditions, we're not going to let you have access to um, communal firewood or use the the mill, the corn mill to, to grind uh, your uh, your corn into masa for tortillas. And an important part of many of these communities is techio, right? Techio is um, communal, non-paid uh, work that for centuries, many of these communities did because the reach of the state was not there. So if you had a road that had been uh, kind of torn apart by a storm or you had some sort of the, the roof of the school or the church had collapsed due to a bad storm or needed some upkeep, people in the community would get together and they would fix it. And you work together. Maybe maybe some people would make uh, a meal for those who are laboring. Other people um, would go out there and do the physical labor. Migrants from the U.S. often would, um, if they couldn't be there to help out with a big techio, they would send their family some money to give a monetary contribution. And so um, part of what was going on, too, is that Protestants started saying, um, I don't have to participate in techios. Um, it doesn't say in the Constitution anywhere that I have to do this communal work. It's not paid for. Um, you know, on Saturdays, I, I go to the, the nearby town and I sell my... Um, 
I sell my rugs or I sell something in a market. I'm not going to give up a day of work to help uh, rebuild uh, the church uh, roof. That's not my problem. I'm not giving money because I'm not Catholic. So why should I have to do it? And the community might come back and say, well, okay, but this, this building is from the 16th century or the 17th century. Um, we don't want to, it's a part of our cultural heritage. We don't want it to collapse. So even if you don't worship here anymore, you should still do this. So you have conflicts like that. And so if you didn't, if you were a a community member in bad standing where you weren't participating in techio, you weren't, um, you know, perhaps following uh, customary law, uh, then you could potentially be ostracized or you could be cut off from some of the benefits of being, um, a, a citizen of that community, a ciudadano de, de bien, a citizen of good standing in the community. So some of the cases I looked at were, um, it could be Jehovah's Witnesses, it could be uh, Adventists being told, you know, sorry, but we're not, we're not letting you come to the mill to grind your corn, we're, or, or um, you know, you're going to have to leave. We don't want you holding these services anymore. Um, and so I think those were ways that you had those were some early kinds of examples of, of conflicts. You know, what's amazing about, um, about your book is that you, you really, those of us who work on, you know, uh, religion in, in Mexico and post-revolution or any, any period, we kind of understand the, um, that of course the exercise of religion, uh, you know, the religious liberty, um, all, all these questions are, are quite contentious, but what your book does is it really kind of brings home the the kind of local level contention over what is not it's not just an act of uh, of conversion it 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 has repercussions within these uh, indigenous communities that um, that are much more serious much more severe right when you talk about expulsion uh, or you know kind of a, a refusal to um, uh, you know, to kind of participate in what is good for, for the community it, it, where your own identity is, is kind of tied regardless of, of, you know, so whether you've converted to Protestantism or, or whether you remain Catholic is very important to consider. Uh, you're still com- uh, connected in, in many ways to the, to the communities um, that you, that you worked with in the research for this project. And I should say that, that it's important to, to kind of understand about, uh, about Katie's book is that we're not just talking about, you know, she didn't just go to, uh, do, you know, historical research in the post-revolutionary period in, you know, dusty old archives. She's employing <laughs> other, other, you know, like, like the, the majority of us do, right. Or dusty old archives. Um, you're, you're employing other methodologies that, that really kind of enrich your study in, in very important ways. Can you talk about, um, you know, the, the research process that you've, you've done here? Sure. Um, well, I think that I was, I had some, some wonderful support in Oaxaca because I did know a lot of local families going into it because, you know, I was from an area um, in New York state where there was a lot of connections and ties uh, to Oaxaca. So I did, I did go into Oaxaca already knowing, um, you know, having kind of a support system there. And I should say that the communities where a lot of the migrants um, that go to, that work in the the Hudson Valley are from, I didn't, um, I didn't directly do research in those communities because I did want to be respectful of, uh, you know, the, the close ties I did have in some of those, in some of those communities. So for example, San Agustin Yatareni is a, is a community, a Zapotec community right outside of Oaxaca city that has tons of, um, has tons of migration, high levels of migration to Poughkeepsie, New York. I didn't, um, I didn't do any 
case studies in that community because I thought that was a little bit too close. That was a community where I you know, spent a lot of time in. I had a lot of good friends, but that was also a community that had lots of religious conflicts. So learning about just kind of the conflicts there did shape the kind of questions I would ask in, in other types of communities. But I would say um, what really kind of the methodology I followed was when I started out in uh, the State Archive in Oaxaca looking up um, just religious conflicts cases. And of course, they had all these, there was all these different ways to look them up. Sometimes they were called conflictos religiosos. Sometimes they were called um, uh, conflictos de tequio, um, or sometimes they were referred to as agrarian disputes. And it all eventually fed back into religious conflict because sometimes the land disputes were over religion that, oh, the the Adventist church claims that they have the right to build their their church there and we don't think so. Or... um, you know, uh, the, the Baptists refused to participate in, in this techio. So those were the cases I was reading. And one case early on about um, a, a religious conflict case that struck my attention, that caught my attention was I was reading about a case in uh, Tlacochawaya, a Zapotec community, about a half an hour, or maybe, well, maybe closer to 45 minutes, really by car outside of Oaxaca City. And I was reading an article uh, I was reading a, a document in the archive about uh, a case in the 50s of, of religious conflict there, and it kept referring back to the 1920s and 30s and saying that, you know, oh, the roots of this problem in the 50s go back to the 20s when there was this Baptist minister. He was one of our own people. He was a you know a native to the community. He became a Baptist. Uh, he became a minister. He built this church. And it kept going back to to that person and saying this was a huge, and I was, and I was wondering, well, what, what happened? Where, when, you know, who was this person? So I went back and was looking earlier and, and finding kind of the, the document trail going a little bit backwards. And at, the more I read, I thought I should, you know, I should visit that community and, and see if, um, you know, any of these families are still there. Um, Cause this was Tlacochawaya um, was where one of the, it's believed to be the first uh, Baptist church. I know a lot of the Baptist churches are, are called, you know, First Baptist Church, but this really was the First Baptist Church in Oaxaca. Um, it was built, you know, in the, in the early 20s, and then um, the minister who you know, kind of uh, was responsible for bringing the Baptist faith to that community, he was murdered uh, in the in the 30s uh, by Catholics in the community. So this was, and it was a topic that you know was still people were still writing about it in the 50s and concerned about it, and you know, kind of some of these some religious uh, conflict cases in the 50s. And then I learned that even to this day, there's still there's still ongoing issues. So um, I visited uh, Tlacochawaya, and I I um, I asked uh, to see some of the older Protestant families. And again, I went in. Um, I first I had connections at a, the Baptist seminary in Oaxaca, and, and so I had asked, you know, uh, if if um, if they could ask around for me and see if this would be appropriate to perhaps uh, pay a visit to one of the older families. And I was told, sure, that this, you know, um, one of the, the eldest uh, Baptist converts in the town, she, she's really interested in, in talking to you and letting you know this history because it's been, it hasn't been spoken about in a while because it was still a very sensitive topic, what had happened in the thirties, what had happened that continued to happen in the community. So I was able to visit um, a woman, Elvira Garcia, who was, um, she was from one of the earliest families that converted to the Baptist faith. And she told me the story about what had happened when this minister, um, Samuel Juarez Garcia, when he had built a church and started evangelizing in the town. And she told me um, over a series of, of several visits, several interviews, or, you know, I would come back um, several times um, 
I was living in Oaxaca for a year and then I would, I would come back um, in subsequent visits to follow up with her. And she told me the story and it was, it was fascinating. And, and as I listened, it was, it wasn't just a story about a religious conflict. It also was a story about um, whether or not community members wanted to accept the role of the state in their community uh, because this Baptist minister was also, um, he was very political. He was, um, uh, he had become a, I think he was certified to become the the post, he was a postmaster in the town and, and he was very supportive of, um, uh, of the 19, of 1920s, um, the, the role of the government in the, in the Cristero movement. He sided with the government, the 1930s, he was pro, um, agricultural reform and a lot of mm-hmm. Catholics in the community were, were pretty concerned about um, some of the um, agricultural uh, uh, reforms that were going on and some of the new school, uh, some of the new school rules in terms of um, uh, the, the, the increasingly secularization of, of school. So I don't know if you want me to tell the kind of tell the story of, of what happened Oh yeah, I, this is really. I was going to ask you if uh, if there was a good story that that you know it stuck with you. This is amazing. So and and just kind of in in context, you mentioned this a little bit. I mean, this is a, a period in, in where you know tensions are incredibly high. You know, coming sure. right out of the Cristero War, um, the, this increasing secularization, uh, the you know the pushing out of the, the you know the clergy and the church of. Uh, you know, sort of um, uh, social life is really important. I'd love you to tell this story. Yeah, please do. Yeah, sure. So back um, in the kind of around the beginnings of the revolution, Samuel Juarez Garcia, he was a young man. Uh, he was maybe 12 or 13 or maybe 15 in 1910, 1911. Um, he had learned about uh, the Baptist faith through uh, coal porters that had kind of visited his community selling Bibles. and he. As a young man, he converted, became a Baptist, went and studied uh, in northern Mexico, um, studied at a Baptist seminary. And after things had kind of calmed down a little bit after 1917 or so, um, he was attending a lot of national Baptist conventions saying, you know, there needs to be more evangelization work being done in Oaxaca. Yes, it's a very kind of Catholic area, but uh, we need we need schools. We need um churches in Oaxaca. So he was given uh, support to to start uh, building a congregation, building a church in his hometown, uh, which was San Jerónimo Tlacochoaya, a Zapotec-speaking community, um, as I said, about uh, probably a 45-minute uh, drive outside of Oaxaca City. So in 1920, he, he'd been away from his community now for five or six years. He came back and he was really inspired by the revolution. He was inspired by the the new the, the railroad lines that were now um, kind of almost finished um, and they were finally reaching Oaxaca City and other towns. He was excited about the role of the um, of SEP and building more schools in Oaxaca, and he started fundraising uh, to build a Baptist church. And uh, it took it took several years, and it was finally built. It was a small Baptist church. It was built in the mid twenties. But it, there was constantly conflicts over it because even though he filled out all the proper paperwork, right, that after the revolution, there was lots of rules about um, church property, right, that it was property of the nation. So he had everything had been given the go ahead for the state and federal government. The church was built. Baptists from all over the country came to help inaugurate it. Um, there was Baptist women's um, 
kind of women's groups, Uniones Femeniles from Northern Mexico. Uh, they had done a lot of the, the fundraising to help build the chapel and to help get uh, the, the, the piano, the, or, the organ and, and the furniture. So they took trains from Northern Mexico down to Oaxaca to celebrate. And so of course there was community, people in the community saying, oh my gosh, what's, what's going on here? This is crazy. Um, all these outsiders are coming in, what's going on? And so from that point on, there were a lot of outsiders that would come in, maybe from not necessarily from Northern Mexico, but people from other communities that were curious about the church, wanted to attend a service. Sometimes they would sleep overnight um, in the town. And so the town was becoming increasingly, oh, concerned about kind of these outsiders coming in. And also the minister, Samuel Juarez Garcia, he was very much um, uh, kind of in in support of um, post-revolutionary um, government goals. So, for example, with agricultural reform issues, he was right behind it. Um, and so in the early 1930s, there was, there was some conflict in, in some Oaxacan communities about what kind of agricultural uh, land reform stuff was going to happen. He also was big with the women's groups in the town, the Baptist Women's Union, with bringing in uh, kind of more mechanized mechanized uh, tools uh, for agriculture and things like um uh, more mechanized uh, um, instruments for um, for for grinding uh, corn. So he would bring in instead of using a metate, he suggested just like the the national government was suggesting was donating to indigenous communities. He was bringing in these mechanized kind of mills, uh, these uh, to to grind the corn instead of kind of women having to bend over with a kind of a rolling pin um, and having to do it. And so he was pretty much anything that the, the state government was suggesting. He was their state and federal government. He was right on board with it. Uh, he also ended up having conflicts with, there was Catholic groups in the town that were, they were concerned. They weren't the Catholics that I interviewed in the town said it wasn't really, they weren't necessarily concerned about this, this new church. They were mostly concerned that uh, Juarez Garcia was very much on board with everything that the state and federal government was doing in the late twenties and early thirties, and that they had concerns. They weren't necessarily hundred um, percent pro uh, with some of the school reforms uh, and agricultural reforms. So the Catholics in the, in the community that I talked to said it wasn't necessarily, it was, it was a religious issue, but at the same time, it was a, it was a political issue. And so the Baptists in the town kind of remember it as this purely religious issue and Catholics remember it as, well, it was a political issue at a time when there was very strong conflicts between Catholics and the church, right? As you've mentioned before with the, you know, the, uh, even the, the vestiges of the, of the Cristero movement, you still see that in places like Oaxaca in the early thirties. So anyhow, so Juarez Garcia gets the church built, um, in the mid thirties, uh, he's murdered, uh, he's murdered, uh, by uh, some Catholics in the town. And the woman I spoke to, who is, she's uh, now passed away. Um, she and her family were very, very interested in my research and wanted to tell their story. So this woman, Elvira Garcia, she was two years old uh, the day that uh, the, the Baptist minister was murdered. But she said, you know, well, I know how this happened. I remember it because my mom was there that day. She was there to use the mechanized uh, corn um, uh, Miller, uh, she was there to get her uh, to grind her corn, and she she saw the group of Catholics rush in at you know maybe five or six in the morning, and kill him. And the way that Alvira Garcia's mom remembers it was that um, it was the Catholic women that kind of beat Juarez Garcia to death. That they came in there, and the instrument. And it's very interesting how Elvira Garcia described it. 
she said that the way that he was beaten to death was with a metate, that they were using those kind of um, rolling pins uh, 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 to to smash his skull and kill him. And that he kind of, uh, he died in his own house right near the, um, the layers of, of, you know, kind of the kernels of corn and the, um, uh, um, as, you know, he was kind of, working and, and hanging out with, with other people that were there to use his mechanized corn mill. And that he was the fact that she, her mother said that it was Catholic women that beat him. And that when he fell back against the wall, he was on top of the, um, the, the, the corn and the, the piles of corn that were in his, uh, that were in the, the, the workshop part of his house. And that, uh, the wall was stained um, from the blood coming from his, his bashed in skull. And so there he is, he's, he's against the wall. There's blood all over the wall and he's, he's kind of um, falling into onto the floor on top of all of this, this corn. So to me, it was kind of um, it was very, it was very symbolic the way that Elvira Garcia described it, how her mother remembered it, that, I thought it was interesting that she remembered it as, as women going in there. It was a group of Catholics. It was men and women, but it was the women that were really furious with uh, Juarez Garcia. Uh, they were the ones that beat him over the head. Um, and that the fact that Elvira's mother remembered that or, or you know, described it as him dying on top of the corn again for, um, for many indigenous communities in Mexico, corn of course is, is very uh, symbolic of, of life of, of so many different things. So, that happened in the mid thirties. Um, and there was this huge conflict in the town The actually federal troops occupied the town for a little bit, uh, weapons from, you know, all families were, were confiscated. A lot of Catholics, including many of the Catholics who I interviewed, they left the town for months, some of them for years, they moved to Mexico city. They moved to other places to Oaxaca city because they said that they were so worried about retribution that the, the, perhaps the Protestants would come after them or, or the federal, uh, the federal troops or um, state police would come after them because Juarez Garcia was very much um, you know, a backer of the government. Juarez Garcia was buried. Uh, he was, uh, he was, his funeral, um, he was given a, a kind of a state funeral. His, uh, his funeral, his burial was written about in the official government um, newspaper, the um, Periodico Oficial. There was a, you know, um, kind of a, a few lines uh, talking about his, his death and, and about the funeral arrangements. Um, so from that point on, Elvira Garcia remembers that there was, you know, there had been probably a pretty active Baptist uh, community in the town, you know, still very much a minority, but the, um, their minister was killed. Uh, the church kind of fell into disrepair. People were, uh, were kind of nervous about worshiping there. And for decades, the church just kind of became dilapidated. It was just kind of falling apart. Baptists in the town went to other communities uh, that's, that had become Baptist, and that's where they worshiped. And then, um, you know, there was, again, conflicts in the 50s over that, that piece of land where the Baptist church was. There was people in the town that said, the church is just, you know, sitting there and it's, it's kind of rotting. It's, it's falling apart. Let's just knock it over and do something else. Whereas Baptists still had this hope that it would one day be restored, that one day that they would, they would kind of come back to having um, a, kind of a, a thriving, vibrant uh, congregation there. So they fought they fought that and said, "No, this is this this land was was approved for this church. We're gonna we hope to uh, you know restore it someday. We want to work on it." And then fast forward through to the two thousands, Elvira Garcia, um, you know, is in her is in her eighties. Her daughters started becoming very active and saying, "Well, maybe we could work with Ina 
or some other um, institution to have some funding to to maybe put a plaque here. There should be something because there's nothing here except there's the facade of this church, and it was it was a beautiful Baptist church, right? For that for them it was it was it was it was very important. It was it was kind of a testament to. Uh, the important Protestant history in that town that people were were increasingly forgetting, and so um, Elvira's daughters had had talked to um, some some groups to see if they could maybe have a, a plaque there. And this was going on for decades, and it's still going on. There's still they still have hope. Her family still has hope that maybe there's some funding that they can get to uh, to do something to at least restore restore the facade of the church and have a mm-hmm. plaque there. And it's been hard because there's been uh, there's other families whose land kind of borders with the church and they're, they're trying to reclaim the land saying that it's, you know, it's not really being used. And for me, just this, this kind of, this, the remnants, the vestiges of this, this Baptist church, it's still there. Um, and you have this family fighting to have its memory preserved to me that, that really stuck with me. And, mm-hmm. and it was interesting because Placo Chihuahua, um, most tourists that come to that town, they come to see the Catholic church. The Catholic church there is, it's huge. It's gorgeous. Um, I think it was for the 16th century. It has a really famous, I mean, just the, um, uh, the interior of the church, there's lots of gold inside of it. There's a, a famous, uh, organ that's there. It's one of the oldest organs in, in, in you know, musical instruments in Oaxaca, at least for, um, organs. And there's that, you know, building gets, gets a lot of funding, um, you know, to do renovations and people, the community are constantly, you know, concerned about renovating it. And so some of the, the Protestants feel like, well, they know that their church is tiny and you know, doesn't have the long history that the Catholic church there has, but they still have that hope that um, people won't forget about that, that moment, that time when they, they did have a congregation there and they keep hoping uh, to restore it one day. Right. That's a great story. Uh, that's absolutely fantastic. And it really does kind of bring, um, bring to the fore, the, the incredibly contentious nature uh, of religious and religious practice. Katie, we've, we've taken a, a lot of your time. I had one more question before we wrap up. And I, I wonder if you could just tell us what's next. What do you, what do you have um, on your research agenda coming up? Sure. Um, well, from the first book project, I was really interested in the role of Protestant education, particularly for women and girls. Uh, some of the earliest Protestant schools, uh, Oaxaca, uh, were Methodist and then Presbyterian schools, and a lot of them catered to girls because in the late 19th century, there weren't a lot of opportunities, unless you were rich, if you had money, sure, but there weren't a lot of opportunities for girls to study. So that kind of caught my attention, and that brought me to... Um, looking at the role of kind of Protestant schools in shaping women's education. So for this next book project, I've tentatively called it um, Protestant Women and Political Activism in Mexico, 1900 to 1955. And so education is one part of it. I was interested in the role of, of Protestant women in education. So from private private schools, but also Protestant women's roles in um, the uh, in SEP, uh, leadership positions in SEP. And then also um, Protestant women's role in suffrage rights. Uh, you mentioned in the introduction that I had participated in the NEH's uh, Suffrage in the Americas Summer Institute. And that really kind of influenced me to look more carefully into the role of Protestant women and fighting for the right to vote. Um, and this is often surprising, but in the, 19, uh, in the 1920s um, and 30s, Protestant women, including some really key uh, uh, suffrage activists um, uh, were 
had been educated in Protestant schools, identified as Protestant. So I thought that was a piece of history that was kind of important and needed to be dis- to be talked about more. So I was interested in the role of Protestant women in schools, uh, in uh, suffrage, you know, voting rights, and also in uh, in different. Um, areas such as, as sports too, because Protestant schools, uh, especially girls' schools, became very noted for basketball and volleyball and their success um, in, uh, in, in, in local and state um, basketball tournaments. So that kind of brought together all of those areas that I'd kind of come out of the post-revolutionary period and were of interest to me. And this way I can focus on, on the role of Protestant women at, and get at um, questions of kind of what does it mean to be a Mexican, a, a woman, uh, a Mexican citizen, um, a woman citizen in uh, the first part of the 20th century. It sounds like fascinating research. It's going to be great. Well, thank you. Uh, again, we've been talking with Dr. Kathleen McIntyre about her new book, Protestantism and State Formation in Post-Revolutionary Mexico, out with the University of New Mexico Press. Katie, I want to thank you again for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Julian.